You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, where we are chugging right through the book of 2 Samuel. Is chugging the right word? Chugging like a train <laughs> chugga. Like slowly climbing up a mountain. <laughs> it, it, chugging seems to imply, I Speed. think... Yeah. Yeah, I guess we're... We're plotting. Plotting? <laughs> meandering. Meandering, I like that Sounds one Sounds more relaxed. Yeah. That's which, basically what we do. Oh, do we ever get... It? that excited or uptight about much of anything no no yeah and that's that's i don't know if that's character flaw or i think it's survival (laughs) anyway that being said uh let's talk about the bible okay so we're still in second samuel 8 and we're talking about david's victories and we we've had that talked about the crazy events with the horses which we spent probably way too much time on the horses, but yeah, I love them. And we're picking up in verse 9, and uh, this is uh, talking about a king of Hamath. His name is Toy, which is an interesting name. And so basically he has, uh, he's heard that David's basically kicking everybody's butts, and he decides hey, I better be a little proactive in my own survival. And so he sends his son to David and to ask about his health and to <laughs> bless him. And in reality, it's to bring a bribe because he brings him silver, gold, and bronze. And if you remember... Well, I mean, seriously, <laughs> wouldn't you? No, it's a smart move. I mean, that's the thing. It, it, these people are still people, and they're going to do what it takes to survive. And I think it's really interesting when you realize how human the reactions really are. Mm-hmm. And so if you remember back in Genesis, uh, when Pharaoh asked about Jacob's health, and we did an episode on that, and to ask about somebody's health is an act of respect, and it's an exchange between equals. Mm-hmm. And so Toy respects David, and, and specifically the, the reason for that is because he had managed to defeat Hadezer. Mm-hmm. So this is caught his attention. Now, David takes the gifts and he voluntarily puts them under Karem, which is that devotion to God. And, you know, he's under no obligation to do so. Right. Uh, these are personal gifts. They're not spoils of war. So there, there's no reason for David to have to do this. And we're told that David adds these things to all the tributes that he'd collected from Edom and Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, and mm. Malachites, and Hadezer. And what's interesting about this list is in this chapter, David never fights the Amalekites. He only fought the Amalekites back at Ziklag whenever they took the women and the children. Mm-hmm. And we do know that he took several things from them. Evidently, he took a lot from them because he actually had distributed a lot of that wealth to the elders in Judah. And we're told that David adds that to these spoils of war. And so. David is actively giving up not just what he wins through the office of being a king, but even what he 
he has given his mm-hmm. personal treasury to the building of the temple because that's where all of this is going to go. It's to build that temple. And so you see David's devotion. It's not about amassing riches for himself. He's going to make sure that this temple has everything it needs to succeed, even though he's not going to be the one to build it. So finally, David strikes down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. This is near the Dead Sea, yeah, and which you know totally makes sense. Uh, and again, we're told that God is giving victory to David all around. Now, that's the end of the, the list of battles and all of David's conquest. But in verses 15 through 18, we have a list of court officials. And this, this list is repeated in 1 Chronicles 15. And there's a couple of different names. And we believe what's happened is that Chronicles just decides to use a more popular name at that time for the same person. Yeah. We really don't have any reason to think that there's any kind of major discrepancy there. Or maybe this was written like during the early part of those that person's official's reign and then the person who took it over, they just put that person in because this was the office that was created. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something of that nature. And, and, you know, and we change names and we change titles even today with our own personal circumstance. So how we refer to somebody at uh, one time of their life or one portion of their life might be different than how we refer to them in a different portion of their life based on the relationship we have with them. So now the big difference uh, within this, these two accounts between Samuel and Chronicles is Samuel says David's sons were priests. In Chronicles, it says David's sons were the chief officials in service to the king. Mm-hmm. So definite change there, and we're going to talk about that. Now, in Samuel, the Hebrew, if you, if you know Hebrew, one of the words that you're going to know right off the bat is Cohen. Cohen means priest. Right. You know, not just from, oh, brother, where art thou? Or uh, Leonard Cohen. Yeah, exactly. So it means priest, and the word is Kohanim. So it's not ambiguous at all within Samuel what the writer of Samuel means. That mm-hmm. It's right there. The word in Chronicles is Harushin. Haroshanim, which is the heads or the first one. And when we say heads in, in Hebrew, we're talking about the source, like the headwaters of a river. Mm-hmm. So they're saying, you know, these are the guys who, they're high up, they're the officials, all authority flows from them. Right. But because Chronicles was written with the separation between the priesthood and the monarchy really in place and firmly established within the minds of the people... They have a problem with this because David's sons are not Levites. They're, they're, they're from the tribe of Judah. Right. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is when we're looking at Chronicles, we're looking at a time when some of the older traditions may not have been remembered. Mm-hmm. When, you, you know, it happens. We, there are certain things that people preserve and hang on to, and they're really good about maintaining those details. Other things, not so much. And so, what I think is that the chronicler is reflecting the sen- sensibilities of his time. Okay. And he, dis- he does this by not contradicting Samuel, but by kind of obscuring what Samuel says. He, right. he kind of broadens the language so it's more open to the interpretation of the reader and doesn't have that fine point on it that the writer of Samuel includes. Now, we talked about this before, uh, so I don't want to go into a lot of detail in this episode, but when a king conquers a city, 
they're able to take on the same roles as the the king that they had conquered. Right. In Jerusalem, the king was both the king of the city and he was also the priest to the Most High. This goes back to the days of Melchizedek. Sure. And so David had a right within the ancient Near Eastern culture to take on that role of priesthood. And so as the king who has now taken on this role of priest and king, just like Melchizedek, those rights and responsibilities are passed on to his sons. Right. And we talked about the psalm that confirms that uh, that view. So this is troubling for people who want to just read what's in the the Torah to explain this, mm-hmm. it becomes less of a problem when you include the Psalms as commentary on the Torah and on David's life, and it, we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Right. And the Torah or the history. Well, the Torah, as far as the Levites being the only ones allowed oh, okay. to be. Okay, I got you. I got you. Yeah, because under the Torah, those are the only ones who can be priests. Now. What we don't know is exactly how David's sons would have functioned because within even the the uh, Levitical tribes, only certain branches were allowed to do certain jobs. So mm-hmm. we don't know if you know they were allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. We don't know if they were allowed to minister before the Ark. We right, right. We don't know. Um, it would be interesting to to know exactly how this played out, but until we make some kind of great uh, you know archaeological discovery. Yeah, we just have to go with what we got. It's all speculation. So now moving ahead, this is where we're going to start to see Samuel and Chronicles part ways. And they're going to part ways, come back together, part ways, come back together. Mm -hmm. And then eventually towards the end, they're just going to go on two different rails. Right. And so this is the first uh, major departure of Chronicles from Samuel. Uh, the writer of Chronicles uh, does not include chapter 9 at all. It is completely missing. There's a couple of reasons for this. Number one is the writer of Chronicles doesn't want to draw any attention or any more attention to Saul than absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He was just a little hiccup. We don't really talk about him. We're just <laughs> going to just keep keep moving. Um, so he he wants you to have your focus on David. So to talk about Saul's descendants as even still being in existence is to create problems in the mind of the chronicler. Sure. So he he ignores this. The other thing is David's dealings with Mephibosheth later on aren't the greatest. And so they kind of present David in a bad light. And okay. so we don't want to include that part of the story. So if you're going to tell the, the good beginning, you almost have to include this kind of dubious time. Sure. And so let's just ignore the story altogether. And then we don't have to wrestle with David's character. Now the writer, Samuel, he doesn't care. He wants you to wrestle with David's character. Mm-hmm. He's not a huge fan of the monarchy to begin with. So, Writer Samuel's not a fan of a lot of things. <laughs> no, he's not. Uh, he, he really, uh, he wants to expose all the reasons why Israel had to go into the exile and why their own behavior was the cause of all the hard times in their mm-hmm. history. Yeah. 
And the chronicler wants to make it more about the story of redemption and hope. Right. And so, you know, it, that's the, the really cool thing, too. And if we think about even, again, how we tell stories, how we talk about things, how you frame this exact same events will change how you see them. And mm-hmm. you don't have to change the events you're talking about. Yeah. You could be very faithful to, to the uh, order of events and what happened, but still change their meanings. Yeah. I, I love a uh, Leighton Flowers actually talks about how we frame things will affect how people view it. And he goes, you know, you might read a headline that says intelligence agency secures information to stop bombing, which is, you know, that sounds great. But then if you find out that they, tortured people to get that information it's not so great anymore exactly so i mean not to get too political but that's just an example that <laughs> right. i thought was a great illustration well and, and this is what the writers of the bible often do they often say hey you need to consider this from this angle and okay don't forget this angle and both things can be true mm-hmm. it, it just it, it doesn't negate the totality of the event or the impact of the event to focus on one aspect. Now, there is some debate on the order. Uh, Some people think that chapter nine is not supposed to be here. That was actually after chapter 21, because in chapter 21, if we read forward, this is when all of Saul's family has been slaughtered. And so it kind of makes sense of verse one in chapter nine, which says, is there still anyone left in the house of Saul? Right. So, you know, David's kind of, is anybody still alive? Uh, you, David may not legitimately know what's going on. And there, there's several reasons. So the the thing is, whether or not it's after 21 or it, the, this is the proper placement really is beside the point. The writer Samuel isn't really concerned with the order of events because we're going to see like all of those battles we just went over in the last episode. Mm-hmm. When they're revisited, he's going to pick them up again and, and you're going to realize, oh, they didn't all happen before these battles, uh, you know, before this event with Mephibosheth. We actually have them happening in the future. Mm-hmm. So, the writer Samuel has structured this book to make points, not necessarily to give you a cohesive record of historical events or, you know, this nice little tidy timeline. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and that's really the point of the whole Bible. It's, it's to make theological points. It's not to give us a con- you know, an exact history book, a modern retelling of how every single thing happened. Well, and and even, you know, history, what we think of as history was something that is pretty much, it's a a invention later on. It's It's a pretty new thing in the grand scope of things. Yeah. And and so the the way we learn it is not how the Bible's using it because nobody did it this time. It's just not something that was done. Right. So reasons why David may not know if there's anyone alive. Uh, First of all, there's been a lot of stuff going on in his life. He yeah. could have just lost track. Uh, Saul's family may have gone into hiding after Ishbosheth was killed, and which you know, would be reasonable. It makes total sense. We know that the the nanny has picked up Mephibosheth. We learned this before. Mm-hmm. She's run off with him, and so he's been in hiding for a very long time, even mm-hmm. before Ishbosheth became king. Uh, if it was something that happened after the events of chapter 21, David may think that everyone is dead. So 
There's lots of reasons, lots of speculation, but the point of the verse is actually the last part of David's question, which is that I may show kindness, may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. David is remembering his vow to Jonathan and, and he's ready to act on it. Now, the key word in um, that last little part of the question is chesed, which is, the ESV translates as kindness. Mm-hmm. Now, I recently invested in a brand new tool that I am like <laughs> in love with, and it's Robert Alter's uh, translation of the Old Testament. Uh, so good. We're gonna. I'll talk some more about that at some point. But Alter translates that translates this as keeping faith with. So he right. wants to keep faith with Jonathan's um, descendants. This word hesed is repeated three times and sets up the story in chapter 10. And so the writer's being very artful here. It's, it's really a great story in how it plays off the next few chapters. So Bergen says that hesed is the highest virtue in Hebrew society. And like most of David's actions, there's two ways to read what follows in this chapter. Uh, you know, David, on one hand, he takes this incredible risk by inviting Saul's grandson into his courts to keep this promise to Jonathan. Right. Just having uh, Mephibosheth here is a reminder that David is, quote unquote, not the true heir to the throne. Right. And so he's stirring up possible discontent and trouble for himself. So this could be a very sacrificial act on David's part. Mm-hmm. Or, on the other hand, it could be a very smart move by David in that, you know, you keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Well, there's, there's that, or it could even be uh, a political statement to be like, no, I was part of this family. It could be. Because he was legally married into it. He was married into it. Jonathan was his best friend. David was basically adopted by Saul. And so... There's so much that makes David a rightful heir, but still a contentious one. Sure. And so the the thing is with David, and we've talked about this before, how David David has this way of doing the right thing, and so often that right thing is the most advantageous thing for him. Mm-hmm. He is a good politician, and we should never forget that. But at the same time, we shouldn't say that that just, you know, takes away the credit due him for doing the right thing. And this is the reason why he is such a hard character to grab hold of, because we want everybody to be either completely altruistic and Mm self-sacrificing and wonderful, or, you know, if you're going to be kind of manipulative and self-serving, then we don't want that to be mixed in with any part of our good guy's narrative. Right. And so not to have that that delineation with David where he's a mix of this, which I think most of us are a mix of that, makes him really hard for us to look at without seeing ourselves. Right. And there's kind of a little bit of an indictment against ourselves when we read his story. Now, verse 2 says, Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziva. And they asked, they called him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziva? And he said, I am your servant. So David's men tracked down one of Saul's servants. And we're going to discover more about his position a little bit later. 
It's notable that his response to David is to immediately declare allegiance to David. And this is going to come up later on, not within this story, but in a later story about exactly how devoted this guy is. Right. So verse three, David repeats the question, is there still someone alive? And Zivob replies, there is a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both his feet, which we knew from a previous uh, chapter in 2 Samuel. But Ziva's uh, reply serves two purposes. It indicates, number one, Jonathan's son is disqualified from being king. He can't be king. Mm -hmm. You have to be physically fit in order to hold that position. Right. Now, he also indicates that because he's been disqualified, he's not a threat to David. And so basically there's no reason to kill him. And Ziva could be acting in a very proactive way and offering this defense of Jonathan's son even before he's asked. Mm -hmm. Or he could be offering a defense for himself about why he had even taken any interest in in Mephibosheth and knew where he was. And he might be saying, hey, what I've been doing, keeping track of him and knowing where he is, is not any indication that I've betrayed you because this guy can't be king. I'm still honoring you as a king. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think we need to appreciate the conflict that is just, has to have filled the kingdom with David's rise uh, to power. Traditional rules of conduct would t- dictate that the former king and all of his family be killed when a new king takes over and often publicly and often very brutally. Right. And David, despite all of this violence that he is willing to carry out, troubling violence that he's willing to carry out, like we saw in the last chapter against his enemies, he never once condones any kind of violence against Saul or his sons. Matter of fact, when he gets news of Saul's death and Jonathan's death, his response, even Ishbosheth's death, who when Ishbosheth grabbed the throne or grabbed the crown when he shouldn't have, David's response to the messengers was to kill the messenger. Mm-hmm. So David is really he's at odds with what's expected of him. And so for people approaching David to talk about anything to do with Saul, they would have just, it would have brought about so many conflicting emotions. Yeah, that's a kind, of, kind of a touchy subject, that one, huh? <laughs> what do I say? You know, which, which way do I go? It's what's going to make the which, king... <laughs> which answer would you prefer here? Exactly. And so we're, he had to have been freaking out, standing there in front of David going, am I going to die if I say the wrong thing? And, you know, the only comfort is in David's words is that he wants to do chesed for Saul's son. But, I mean, seriously, do you trust a politician? I mean, the, right. <laughs> you know? And Ziphah is, is, if he's been serving under Saul, he's been one of Saul's servants. Not only does he know David's reputation, he knows what the king of Israel is capable of. Mm-hmm. I mean, David had been Saul's favorite, and how many times had Saul tried to kill him? And so Ziva is very aware of the authority and rights of a king to mm-hmm. do as he pleases and had every reason to be afraid. So verse, in verses four and five, David asks where Jonathan's son is. Ziva tells him that he is in the house of Makir, the Amila, the sorry, in Lodabar. Uh, Amiel, I think is how I'm sorry. 
how we need to pronounce it. I've slept since I wrote my notes. Fair uh, enough. David sends for uh, Mephibosheth, and this is the first mention we have of Makir. He's going to show up again in chapter 17, and he's going to be one of David's staunch supporters uh, during the rebellion of Absalom. Now, Lodabar <clears throat> means pastoralist or barren. Possibly it's a derivation of flame or fire, of parched. Okay. Now, there is a little bit of play on words because Lodabar can actually mean, too, no word. That There's no sustaining word in the land. And Devar. Is, okay. So lo being not, Devar being word. Okay. Which is actually the root of the, the name of Deborah, uh, the prophetess who gives the words. So okay. in Hebrew, it's really fun when you have these similar words because oftentimes the writer will use them so that you don't just see one image. You have multiple ideas captured. Yes, you may have a right and correct translation that's more accurate than the other, but you also have these underlying aspects that are being stirred in your mind mm -hmm. if you know the language. Yep. Well, that makes sense. I mean, I, I, I don't know. It, I don't I mean, I don't know if many examples of that right off, but I know that that's what I've heard anyway, <laughs> not, being a, <laughs> not being a Hebrew speaker. I was trying to think of an English example. We we don't really have a whole lot, I don't think, not in the same way. And, and a lot of that is just a consequence of the fact that Hebrew is a very small language. Right. We're looking at you know, four to 6,000 words, depending on who's counting and where we're dividing the words. We're talking ancient Hebrew. A ancient Hebrew, yeah. yes. Now, if we want to talk about English, we're, uh, last time I checked, it was well over 100,000 words, and it's growing every day. Yeah. So, well, we keep stealing them from other languages. We like to do that. <laughs> uh, we have to come up with new words for new technology. Right. I mean, so like iPad, Google, internet, mm -hmm. online, you know, all of these are new words that yep. have been added in my lifetime. <laughs> so Yeah, no, I, I get it. It's, there's, it, it is pretty interesting. But. Yeah. So when you consider all of that, I mean, you just see how the language has changed, but the thing is, we don't know where Lodabar is located. We have some suggestions, uh, lots of different suggestions. And usually when you have lots of different suggestions, it means no one really knows. Uh, someone might have an idea, but that's as good as it gets. So I'm not even going to go into where it may have been because... <laughs> but you said there's no word. Is it curious, is it possible it's like in an undisclosed city? Could that be a possible translation? It would be a stretch. Okay. It it would be a stretch, but at the same time, I when I think of no word, of course, my my mind automatically goes to John, which Lagos, is, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, uh, but the the idea of a sustaining word, and the Torah was a sustaining word. So there's also the idea that it could have been a lawless city or someplace that which on the outskirts. Yeah, which makes sense if you're hiding from a king. And you don't want to be found. Well, where are you going to go? You're going to go where the, the order that his reign has provided isn't. You're going to go outside of his jurisdiction. Precisely. So, uh, yeah, it, it, this is the reason why I think Hebrew is so much fun, because you can play with these things. It just, you know, be careful. Uh, when, you, when you talk about, like, the underlying possibilities, you don't want to go too deep and sure. miss the, the main point. So... Verse 6, and we're just going to read the first part, it says, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. Now, we finally have a name. Uh, this is the first time in the chapter it's mentioned, Mephibosheth. In Chronicles, his name is given as Meribal. 
Mephibosheth means uh, from the mouth of shame, which might refer to his condition. Mm -hmm. So this may not have been the name that Jonathan gave him. But we know that the writer of Samuel doesn't like to include the word Baal in everything, because that's the foreign god. Sure. We, we don't talk about him. Um, if it is Baal, it's more likely that the name means he who contends with Baal. And so the idea that this would be seen, that Mephibosheth would be seen as a hero, that mm. he would be one who mm. contended with Baal, because who, who else fought, fought against Baal? Well, now we're back with Gideon mm -hmm. and Jerubbabel. So that way he he's kind of mirroring Gideon in a really weird way. Okay, yeah. Uh, I didn't go into that really deeply, but it, it's, it's a kind of... It would be interesting to sit down with both stories and see what parallels we find. But I yeah. think they're going to be found more in the later story of Mephibosheth than here. Yeah, that's kind of a project <laughs> for someone else. Yeah, right now. Anyway, but Mephibosheth, you know, he falls on the face. He pays homage to David. Uh, this is not an easy act. I think we need to remember that. This guy's crippled in both his feet. Getting down might be easy. Getting back up afterwards would probably be painful and require some assistance. But that makes it that much more of a symbol and an act to demonstrate his willingness to see David as king. He is in no way trying to say you know, David shouldn't be king, and he's not challenging mm -hmm. David as king. His response is just, it's so instinctive and so immediate that you're the one I'm going to follow. Yeah. When in reality, he probably would have been the one who would have succeeded uh, Jonathan had Saul's line continued. So mm. he's looking at the man who has what is quote unquote rightfully his. And to see David elevated to the position that he would have fulfilled in a normal human being that might've stirred up some jealousy and bitter bitterness, but Mephibosheth doesn't seem to offer any indication of that. It's just, this is where we are, and this is where we're, we're going to go, and we're going to accept your rule. Um, in 6b, David calls Mephibosheth by name, and David hasn't been told the name. No one said who this is. So there's really an interesting thing to think about. Did David recognize him? Um you know, Mephibosheth was five years old when he was taken away, and now he's somewhere in his 20s, according to the timeline. So did David know who he was? You know, David and Jonathan were friends. Was he carrying yeah. Mephibosheth around on his shoulders? Were they, you know, throwing the ball back and forth in the yard? Right. How close were they when this kid was little? And so you kind of have to wonder what the connection was there, but of course, the writer Samuel doesn't tell us. So verse seven, David said to him, do not fear for I will show your, show you kindness, chesed, for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Now, um, what's interesting about this is until we get to Gideon in the book of Judges, we always find this phrase, do not fear, do not be afraid, in connection with God. And almost always, it is 
dealing with the promise of land and mm-hmm. the blessing through land. Now, when we get to Gideon, that kind of changes, but that, that makes sense because before Gideon, when we have God or one of his angels showing up, we're talking about a time when Israel doesn't have land. When we get to Gideon, now we're talking about the protection of land. Mm-hmm. So when David says this, I mean, it's it's crazy. And and by the way, let me give some scripture on that so you don't think I'm just, you know. And oftentimes this. when it's spoken, it's spoken either by an angel or the angel, or of, the the angel of the Lord. Yeah. So Genesis 15, 1, when God's talking to Abraham, with the pro- and he's talking specifically about the promise of Canaan. That, that do not fear, do not be afraid. Genesis 21, when God's talking to um, actually Hagar about Ishmael, and God's going to make Ishmael a great nation. So that's interesting that it's we have the same words. Genesis 26, 24, this is God talking to Isaac. And again, I'm going to make you a great nation. To make someone a great nation includes within that the promise of I'm going to give you land where you can become that nation. Uh, Numbers 21-34, this is Moses when they're fighting King Og, and it's again repeated in Deuteronomy 3-2, do not be afraid, I'm going to give you his land specifically. Joshua 8-1, do not be afraid, I've given you the lands of Ai. Mm. So we have this um, over and over again. So when we hear David say it, do not be afraid, I will give you land, you will eat at my table. Mm We're hearing echoes of God's language and potentially, um, I'm sorry, particularly when we're talking about David speaking in relationship to a covenant. What are all of those passages I just went through? This is God saying, this is the covenant I've made with you as Israel. Now David's saying, this is the covenant I made with your father. And since I made this covenant with your father, I'm going to give you land and I'm going to give you provision and you should not be afraid. So this is also one of those kind of conflicting David moments when you think about what's going on here. David very well could just be speaking as the human representative of God to Israel. And so it's wholly appropriate from that perspective for David to echo God's language, to actually have God's words coming out of his mouth as if he is a God doing this, Mm -hmm. or it's completely overstepping his bounds and David is beginning to behave as if he is God and forgetting his position. Uh, but to answer that question, we're going to have to get into chapter 10. So the main thing here is we have this foreshadowing, this question that's being introduced very subtly in the text. So the writer isn't going to slap you in the face with it just yet, but he is going to make you answer this question of how far should David go as the representative of God? Where does David as king and God's human representative end? And where does God himself begin? And, you know, I think that's really something that people, even in some kind of spiritual leadership position today, wrestle with. I mean, there's a lot of pastors out there who seem to think they can do anything. Why? Because they're speaking on behalf of God, so the rules don't apply to them. And David is very much a person who wrestles with what rules do apply to him. Mm-hmm. So um, a little side note on that verse too, David refers to both Jonathan and Saul as Mephibosheth's father. Mm-hmm. So this is a really good example of how in the Hebrew, when someone is referred to as father, it's not speaking specifically of the immediate father. Right. 
it could be any of the ancestors or anyone who watched over them or ex- anything like that. Yeah, so it, it's it's not we have to be careful when we read that word father. Are we looking at it in context? Sure. So really kind of a a, a good verse if you want to talk about that to to point out that this was an acceptable way to use it. Now, David seems to have taken personal possession of Saul's personal lands when he became king. Right. And this is very common that if you, you know, go in, conquer another king, you take over, you get not only their kingdom, and there's the royal treasury and mm-hmm. the royal lands that belong to the kingdom. Depose king, win prize. Well, yeah, but there's two two levels to that prize because you have the national prize, but then you also have all of their personal stuff sure. belongs to someone different. Now, this is normal, too, because uh, the, the idea that he should return this to Mephibosheth, the idea that David maybe didn't have right or full rights to Saul's personal land. It's, it's not unheard of. Matter of fact, in the Odyssey, Odysseus' son, he says, hey, I've got no claim to the throne of Ithaca. I, that, that, yeah, somebody else beat mm-hmm. my dad. I, I'm out. But he maintains that he still has rights to everything that his father owned personally. Okay. So, the, and, you know, we're talking about the same time frame here. Now, to eat at the table of the kings was an honor reserved for someone who served or blessed the king. So, in other mm-hmm. words, you do something good for the king, you get invited in. Mephibosheth hasn't done anything good for David. Matter of fact, he doesn't even have the ability to do anything good right. for David. So this invitation is like excessively generous. And we're actually going to find examples of how this is used later in the book of Kings. But it we see that Mephibosheth is a really big exception to the rule. Right. And which is great because... Uh, our friend uh, Craig Conaway, he's done some work with Mephibosheth, and we're going to have to get him on to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, we need to. Because, you know, it, it presents us this beautiful picture of how, you know, we're cri- we're all cripples that God has invited to the table. Mm-hmm. And so David kind of prefigures this in a really, really great way, if we're reading this positively. Right. If we're reading it negatively, then David is offering Mephibosheth kind of the gilded cage kind of idea of things. You know, I'm going to keep you here so I know what's going on. But verse 8, David pays homage to Mephibosheth again. And he asks, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? So he refers to himself in the lowest terms Mm -hmm. that a Hebrew person can possibly um, refer to themselves as. Mephibosheth has no illusions about his standing in the society. Mm. He's a cripple. And when you are talking about a society that is dependent on, you know, continual working of the land, working with the Mm. animals, food sources are limited, people who are valued for their ability to contribute to that. Manual labor is basically a commodity. Yeah. And he is... He can't do this. He can't even fight as a warrior. He he can't do anything that contributes to the food or the protection of the kingdom. He really is a no one. And so for him to um, to recognize this, I mean, you have to wonder 
what kind of mental and emotional shape was Mephibosheth in? Did he, you know, it sounds like he's just completely given up at this point. Mm. And, you know, his family's gone. He's completely alone. And he's existing on the kindness of strangers, very literally, to to even survive, mm-hmm. which is which all cripples in that society pretty much did. Um, so David takes it further, though. Uh, he knows that land, giving this land that had belonged to Solomon back to Mephibosheth, we come with responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And Mephibosheth can't fulfill those responsibilities. He is physically incapable of it. And so he... Um, he says in verse nine, then the king called to Ziva, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. Verse 10, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziva had 15 sons and 20 servants. Now, there's a little bit of confusion in this verse. Because on one hand, um, David is saying, you're going to take over and you're going to do what he can't. Mm-hmm. And you're going to bring it all in and you're going to make sure that he's taken care of. So we'll, we'll kind of start at the beginning. Uh, Ziva is referred to as a Na'ar in this verse, which that's usually translated young man, like okay. a boy right. uh, or a youth, maybe a teenager. But he can't really be a young man. He's got 15 sons. So unless he's, you know... <laughs> Got fifteen wives and had you know, kids when he was Fair sixteen. Enough. He's he's not. The, the math's a little fuzzy. Math's a little fuzzy. However, we know from other verses and different contexts that this word can also be translated as a steward, like a steward of a, a, a state. He's an okay. overseer, and so the word I hear also applied to him is servant. And this is in the last part of the verse. And it's weird that the ESV decided to translate um, servant, uh, and they are a servant in that last part of that verse. It's just, it's not, sometimes their, their translation choices make me ask. The, the writer obviously makes me ask questions. Anyway, I won't get started on the ESV just yet. When the writer is <laughs> trying to make a distinction between a servant and the Na'ar, mm-hmm. the, the steward, uh, the term stu- servant here is a pl- uh, the st- sorry. The term servant used in this passage and applied to Ziva and other places, but Alter um, points out that when we have the the word for servant, which is eved, it encompasses hired and free servants. So okay. we've we've got this. Um, it can be someone who you pay for their labor, or it could be someone that you've captured in war, or someone who is okay. uh, working for you to pay off a debt. And Alter is definitely a servant, but his 20 men are not servants, they're slaves. So okay. he makes that distinction. And you, Zamora uh, sees this passage as alluding to a situation in which Ziva is the servant of David, but then he had been functioning as a steward over Saul's uh, estate, which David took over. So this is Mm. why he gets moved in that position. And then underneath him, he has these slaves that serve him. So Ziva is kind of, even though he's, he's David's servant, he is, he's got some standing because Mm. he's got these slaves. He's got people. I mean, he literally owns other people. And in this culture, that's a symbol of 
being wealthy and successful. Right. And so... We're not so much for that today, but it happened back then. Yeah. And so, but there's a hierarchy in place. And the point is, Ziva was not someone who was obligated to immediately do this. David did not own him in the way that Ziva owned his servant, uh, owned his slaves. And so... But still to be given land to work, that's kind of a big honor in that day and age, too. It is, but here's the thing. It seems as if Ziva was already doing this and uh, and kind of functioning as the lord of the land. So this is a demotion for Ziva because now the land no longer, you know, even functionally belongs to him. It belongs to Mephibosheth. And now he has to give all of what he was bringing in, not just his tribute to David, but now he has to give it to Mephibosheth. And so he's not going to be as prosperous as he once had been before okay. Mephibosheth shows up on the on the scene. Now, um, the whole arrangement is a source of confusion because on one hand, David is saying that uh, Ziva is supposed to be providing bread for Mephibosheth to eat, and yet Mephibosheth is supposed to eat at David's table. And so why do both of these things need to be happening? So there's two possible ways to resolve this. One, Mephibosheth has family that uh, is not included in the table to dine with David. Sure. Uh, we later learn that he does have a son. So providing food for Mephibosheth may actually be referring to provi- providing food for Mephibosheth's wife and other kids. And the estates being what provided for them while dad was in Jerusalem. The other thing is living with a king was not cheap and it wasn't always free. When you lived in the king's house, you still were expected to maintain a certain level of dress, mm-hmm. a certain level you know, of um, being able to present yourself as belonging to that mm-hmm. level of society. And he probably would have had to have apartments nearby that were maintained, and he would have had to have people who could take care of him in those places. So he still had expenses just to even be there. Matter of fact, it's kind of interesting. um, Forget which Louis it was in France. uh, He, uh, when he was working on Versailles, he, he had the royal courts and the lords and the ladies who were part of that. And it was actually considered something of... A financial burden to be among the king's favored because mm-hmm. they were they had to dress and and conduct themselves in a certain way and they weren't able to take care of their own business dealings all the time right because they weren't in Paris well, that makes uh, sense yeah it, you know uh, not that that's a great one to one translation yeah you, you can't always impose. Yeah, every analogy breaks down somewhere. Exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. So verse 11. And so Ziva said to the king, according to all that the Lord commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Now, we have moved so far in the story, it's almost hard to remember that this is almost exactly the same situation that David was in with Saul all those years ago. Mm-hmm. And so now it's David who brings Saul's grandson into the royal house. But there's some distinctions because David isn't bringing Mephibosheth in because he's useful. Well, that's exactly why Saul brought David into his house. Mm -hmm. David was there to help 
calm Saul whenever that evil spirit was troubling him. Right. And so David's act is an act of hesed. Saul's act is one of utility. Mm-hmm. Now, David not only invites Mephibosheth in, he asks nothing of Mephibosheth. He doesn't make him do any kind of work or service. And when David becomes a threat to Saul, Saul drives him out. But Mephibosheth is the threat that's brought in. Mm -hmm. So on the surface, the situation seems the same. But when you look deeper, you see that it is a reversal of David's situation, not a reenactment of David's situation. And so I I love that because in a lot of ways, this, you know, David is basically functionally adopting the son of his enemy is kind of a foreshadowing of God's invitation to us. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of, of application and theological points that can be brought out. And I don't want to go into them too much because we do want to get Craig on here and let him really go into that. So verse 12, Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziva's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Ziva goes from being the servant of David to the servant of this cripple, this nobody in society. And like I said, this is going to play into some of the things that Ziva does later. Right. And, um, and there's also a little hint here, too, that while Mephibosheth may have been disqualified to be king because of his physical state, mm-hmm. he had a son who wasn't. So again, this situation is not risk-free from David. Right. So, because if Micah could have garnered enough support, he could have actually posed a real threat. Well, it's probably wise of him to not get involved, because, you know, <laughs> as we're about to see, that David's own family has enough trouble with that stuff anyway. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And that's where we get into some really cr- crazy parts of the Bible uh, in those stories. And I can't wait to get there. So verse 13, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he always ate at the king's table and now he was lame in both his feet. So we have that affirmation. This did happen. He was there. Mm-hmm. He, David fulfilled his promises, but he, it, it, this doesn't heal him. He still has difficulties that he's going to have to, to deal with throughout the rest of his life. Right. And, you know, this really provides a great contrast, too, because just a couple of chapters back, we have David, the king who leaps and dances before the Ark of the Lord. And then the um, he, we bring in the lame and crippled son of Saul. So you, mm-hmm. you see how David's monarchy, there's kind of this pre-shadow, foreshadowing there where David's monarchy is one that's going to leap and dance into the future, where Saul's has been relegated to being a servant of the king and unable to dance. Hmm. And it's a great contrast. But we also are looking ahead to chapter 10, because um, David's act of chesed to Mephibosheth is going to provide the, the contrast for the chesed that he tries to extend to the Ammonite king. And... This is the reason why people, uh, more the reason why people believe chapters 9 and 10 were put together and that it was done very intentionally because you're supposed to compare and contrast chapters 9 and 10 to mm-hmm. see how, on one hand, David is extending chesed to the grandson of Saul, mm-hmm. and then 
the idea of extending chesed to the Ammonites. Okay. Well, the Ammonites, you know, they're not part of God's covenant community. And so by putting the two of them together, the question presented in chapter 10 is, again, what we were talking about earlier, is whether or not David has overstepped his bounds. Should David have extended kindness or chesed to an enemy of God? And so we're starting to get these little fracture points within David himself that one or two of these things are kind of cause for a raised eyebrow. But when you start to put them together, you begin to see why chapter 11, which is where we get into the David and Bathsheba story, why it could happen. Mm. This wasn't just David woke up one afternoon, I started to say one morning, but one afternoon, and makes this horrible mistake. We're starting to see how David's perspective of himself and his role in this situation has begun to shift. Sure, He's no longer the grateful you know, kid on the run trying to survive, you know, this Saul who's trying to kill him. He's now, oh, he's been elevated. And how does that impact how he views himself and his, what his rights are as king and how far can he go as king and which rules apply and which don't? Mm-hmm. And so um, the story is presented with, with this background information that allows us to look deeper into um, into David, but it never really we don't get all of our questions answered, right? Which is very typical of the writer of Saul because he or Samuel because he doesn't include things that he doesn't think are important. And when we get move into chapter ten, we really see how the why of the story is not that important to him. What is important to him, just like everything else, is that it happens. And that chapter 10, in a conjunction with 9, shows you the limits of David's authority. Mm-hmm. And it gives chapter 10 actually gives you a context for how to interpret Mephibosheth's story. And it gives you the backdrop for David and Bathsheba. So you've got to have chapter 9 through 10 in order to get you to chapter 11 to make sense of what happens there. So, oh, it's... <laughs> When again, I, I know we've talked about it so often that if when you follow the the story and you have the continuity, yeah, it, instead of reading it like a bunch of isolated episodes of people that might as well not even have ever met when yeah. they're that actually the same people, exactly. And you begin to see that there's a depth and a thoughtfulness about the biblical text that we don't often appreciate. Mm-hmm. And very true. So. <laughs> I want to look at, uh, we've got a little bit of time here. We're going to jump into chapter 10 just a little bit because we want to uh, make these connections while they're still fresh in people's minds. So verse 1 says, After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. Verse 2a, And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nakash, as his father dealt loyally with me. Now, this is... The last real dealings we had with the Ammonites was in 1 Samuel 11, and that was when the Ammonites, led by Nakash, attacked Jabesh for the purpose of bringing disgrace to Israel, and specifically Israel under their new king Saul. 
And when Saul heard, this is the incident where he killed the oxen, he cut up the pieces of the oxen and sent them out to the 12 tribes to summon everybody to join him in battle. This is Saul's bright and shining moment in mm-hmm. his career as a king. And that was the last time we saw uh, Saul being wonderful, but it's also the last time we saw the Ammonites. But suddenly, or with any significance, there is a little bit of connection later on in Samuel, but we don't have any major battles against them. Now, David wants to show chesed to the enemy of an, uh, to the enemy of Israel. Okay. And David says that Nachash had shown him chesed, and we have no record of any place in scripture where uh, Nachash may have shown David chesed or when it, it occurred. The most likely scenario is that basically when David was on the run, Nachash may have provided David a place to stay. You know, he could allow him to be in the Ammonite territories, or he may have even given supplies to David and his men. I mean, there were mm-hmm. 600 of them. And um, he could have even intervened when, when Saul was chasing David. We just don't know. It really is all speculation. Um, and the room for speculation there leads to some very interesting theories on the relationship between Nakash and David, but mm. we're going to go into those when we get to um, Psalms 51, because we will be getting into that psalm when we talk about David and Bathsheba. Okay. Now, if you're reading the ESV, you probably aren't seeing that connection of Chesed to Jonathan, uh, to Mephibosheth and Chesed to uh, Hanun, because... It's one of my pet peeves with the ESV. They were not consistent in their translation. They okay. they chose an English word in cha- in chapter nine, which is uh, which is helpful for reading. You know, if you speak English, but go ahead. Sorry. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. What they did was with Mephibosheth. He's going to. They said he's going to show kindness to Mephibosheth. Mm-hmm. Okay. That the word there being translated for kindness is chesed. Whenever we get to chapter ten. Now, David is saying that he's going to show, what's the word, um, loyalty. loyalty. He, you know, he's dealt with him loyally. Yeah, and, and the, well, even the GPS says, keep faith. Keep faith. Okay, so this is the reason and why. It, but, it, but it's both. It's, it's in, in both, both places. places. Keep faith. Yeah. There you go. And Robert Alter, whenever he did his translation, that we see the same thing. He keeps those two um two phrases consistent so that when you're reading through there, you actually see that it is the same, you, you know, you see, it's the same phrase. It's the same words. Mm. Now, absolutely kindness and keeping faith or loyalty, all of these words describe Kesed. We don't have a great English word for translating this. So a lot of times we do throw these synonyms out there that just try to capture the idea Without trying to completely define it, because if you try to define it in English, we're going to be here all day. Right. And so the ESV doesn't necessarily use the wrong translation in either place, but in not keeping it consistent, we miss the fact that these two stories are supposed to be connected. Sure. And so that's the reason why I do like uh, Robert Alter's translation, because in verse nine, in chapter nine and verse one, it says that I may keep the faith with him. And then in uh, chapter 10, verse two, it reads, let me keep the faith with him. 
it, it's there. It's mm. on the, and if you're just paying attention, even if you're just reading in English, you get what's being said and you see how the two stories are being uh, connected with these, this lexical connection. But then as you keep reading, you'll be able to see that there is a thematic connection. And one of the elements of the thematic connection is we're talking about sons. Right. Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son. Hanun is Lachash's son. And David desires to show these sons chesed as a way of honoring not the son, but the dead father. Mm-hmm. And so the difference being that Jonathan and Mephibosheth, they're a member of the covenant community of Israel. They are deserving of God's kindness and God's loyalty and love. Mm-hmm. Nakash and Hanun, they're enemies. They're Ammonites. They don't belong to Israel. And they're part of the group of nations that God has commanded that Israel drive out of Canaan. And so when you put the two stories together, you get the larger truth that's revealed within the narratives that you don't get whenever they're told individually. And so we're, we've got some really great stuff to go into, and I can't wait to get into the rest of verse two. I do have a question okay, go ahead. Uh, on that. I'm just going to throw this out here, then we'll probably wrap up. Yeah. But is the, what we're seeing in this parallels or contrast is we've got you can show kindness to the person who comes to your table and becomes part of the family mm-hmm. versus showing kindness to the enemy who's out there still doing their own thing. It's kind of a appropriate circumstance and, and whether or not, and I don't know if that's where that's going, but it seems to me like there might be some kind of uh, parallel or some kind of message if well, you absolutely. wanted to take a message away from it, you know. Because because what we find, you know, Mephibosheth, when he's approached by David, man, he's on his, he, he painfully throws himself on the ground mm-hmm. and, and says, I'm your servant. Who are you to pay attention to me? Whereas we're going to find out Hanun, his response is completely the opposite. Right. And so um, there's also some really interesting uh, clues hidden on how we could, uh, you know, find some modern application within uh, the story itself, within the language itself. Right. And I, you know, if someone wants to, you know, play a little game of seeing if they can figure it out in just verse two B, uh, if you read that carefully and think about how those words are used within the New Testament. I think a lot of people are going to figure out where I'm going with this pretty quickly, but uh, anyway. Yes, definitely there is something there with not only how we respond, but where, how do we extend this invitation to join in the loving kindness of God? And when is it appropriate to extend loving kindness Mm -hmm. and how it's extended? This is all wrapped up in these stories and... It's. I think it's very illuminating, and we we can actually find some really great application in them. So, yeah. I'm I'm excited about the next section of the story. Yeah, sounds good. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Everyone, hopefully, everyone listening is. Uh, if you want to be part of the conversation uh, between now and next episode, feel free to hit us up uh, on social media, the Raven Creek SC, where you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Mm-hmm. And RavenCreekSC.com is our website where you can find past shows and show notes on some of the older stuff and we're updating those as you know as we can supposedly <laughs> the um also check out uh joe zaragoza with commentarians 
Joshua Sherman with Tending Our Nets and Change My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. So, yeah. But come join the conversation and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.